on today's show. We are getting to know Toby. But first, a word from today's sponsors. Andre Psyche is the freelance creator extraordinaire, someone who makes music, poetry, art, clothing, and lives to make others feel good. Search him up on any social media. It's Andre Psyche. That's P-S-Y-C-H-E. The next time you are looking to add some creative stimulation to your social media circle. Patreon.com helps creators like me earn a monthly income that will be put towards podcast expenses. Support the Getting to Know You Pod's creative endeavors through Patreon for as little as $2 a month. There are all sorts of costs that I had no fucking idea about associated with posting podcasts, not to mention the need for equipment and production. So dear listeners, if you've enjoyed getting to know any of our guests or just want to help keep the pod going, go to our Patreon. The link's in the description and your support of the Getting to Know You pod is very much appreciated. Two bucks too much? Here are three free ways to help. Get your thumbs ready. One, push the subscribe button on whatever app you're listening to the Getting to Know You pod on. Did that? Thank you. Two, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on your social media like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Go ahead, open those apps, click away if you haven't already. Thanks again. Three, go to Apple, write a review. The internet tells me this might be the most important and impactful. So thank you. Your support, dear listener, whether it's with your thumbs through our Patreon or ideally both, is greatly appreciated. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you. Putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely and doggone it. And Toby is the author of an audiobook I recently finished, First Casualty, the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 9-11. He's also the author of Dead Man Risen, which won the Orwell Prize. And if you don't love Orwell, I'll know what's wrong with you. A bandit <laughs> county and his Country. Li- I'm sorry? Country. country. I'm sorry. Bandit country. Can you tell I'm nervous, Toby? Um, <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on letting people get to know you, man. I really appreciate it. Sure. Glad to be here. I I, I was kind of telling you earlier, I'm and something you might not know about me, I'm a huge fanboy for people who are super accomplished and just cool and have lived life. And the more I read about your bio, the more I'm like, I got to get out of Delaware. I'm just not doing enough with my life, man. Well, all the bad bits, all the failures and the stumbles, they're not in there. You know, it's just the good bits, <laughs> it's, the highlights. Yeah, it's, dude, I wrote down things commissioned in the Royal Navy, journalism, imprisoned in Zimbabwe, which led to being banned, and a five-year legal battle over keeping your sources, I guess, protected Yeah. That, that were quoted in a 99 article that dealt with the IRA. Yeah. And I, I don't know, man, like... What I wanted to ask, and it might sound stupid, is like, what do you think you're going to think of first when you die? 
that's a good question. So when, um, yes, because when something bad happens, part, part of me is like, shit, got to do some other stuff because that can't be the first line of the, uh, the, the obit. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, um, the other thing is the tombstone, I guess. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'd like to be remembered. Well, hopefully there's some other things to be done in the meantime. But, you know, for the books, for, for you know, some, I don't know, acclaimed books that added to the sum of human knowledge and helped people and inspired people. I guess something like that. Okay. Um, I mean, it's funny. The books are the things that really last. I mean, I've, I think I've done some good journalism, but there's this sort of saying in Britain that, you know, the next day's newspaper, you know, today's newspaper story is tomorrow's fish and chip paper, or that it, it lines the hamster cage. Obviously, now it doesn't even do that because it's online. So it's just people just kind of swipe past it in, in a couple of minutes. But, you know, people talk about, you know, newspaper journalism or, you know, news website journalism as sort of the first draft of history. And it, and it can be and it's great. And it's a real thrill and adrenaline rush to do it. But I feel it's ephemeral. It's it's here today, gone tomorrow. And uh, the things that, you know, I remember um, are the books and what's got and what's gone into the books. And, and that's why I've, you know, um, you know, currently kind of trying to do that pretty much full time before it was, you know, in tandem with the, you know, newspaper jobs. But I think those are those books are contributions to history. I think they really help the people that I'm writing about sometimes and their families and their sort of colleagues to, to kind of understand in context what happened. And uh, so, yeah, I really, I really love that above everything else. And, uh, you know, but the rest of it's been fun as well. <laughs> Dude, when you bring up context and I'm going to sound like an idiot when I talk about your most current book because I regretted not reading it and listening to it because it was so dense and I'm so unfamiliar with just the towns and the names and the the jargon that goes along with the CIA that goes along with Afghanistan, that goes along with post 9-11, even just understanding the tribes let alone the city names, right? And you get lost so easily. And the the warlords, you're like, yeah. okay, I need a web and I need pictures. And I just needed to see the words. But when I think of the book, man, context, I loved the context you put every decision and battle in, in that book. It was so, it was like, behind, it was like an insider novel after yeah. every little story that happened. It must've been grueling. Yeah, it, it was, but... For me, it's very complicated <laughs> and it's even complicated for, you know, I spent quite a long time reporting there. It's complicated for even CIA officers that speak the language who, you know, spend years there. And one of the benefits of getting older, you know, I'm 56 now, is you realize or you sort of have a bit of confidence that, well, I feel if I'd you know, when you're a lot, when I was a lot younger, I used to think if I didn't know something, that was because I was stupid or I hadn't read something. And now I sort of think, well, if I don't understand that word or I don't understand that historical reference, then a lot of other people won't. won't. And so I'm just going to ask the question and I'm going to find out. And so writing that book, 
there was a ton of stuff I didn't know. But for me to understand it, and for the reader to understand it, I had to first understand it and distill it down so that it was easily understandable. Again, I think when a lot of younger journalists and writers, they think it's clever to overcomplicate things. Hmm. Really, it's cleverer to, to be able to write and speak simply so that your average person can understand. And um, yeah, the problem with the audio book is you don't have the maps. And so in the paper copy of the book, God, that would have been helpful. I can send you this PDF, actually. <laughs> um, but there's end papers, you know, so the front inside cover and the back inside cover, there's a two-page map, which has, uh, and this was crucial, actually putting the maps together was crucial to me putting the story together and understanding. Because so, so much of it goes with that. Like, that's actually literally what I needed. I just wanted to see right. and understand the geography of the movements. Damn, that right. was smart. Whoever so that's like that a, was so the smart. map is it's really um it's really three maps because it's like the world map and then it's the map of Afghanistan which also has where all the CIA teams were throughout Afghanistan plus, you know, the you can see the borders of Pakistan and Uzbekistan and Iran and everywhere else. You can see where Kabul is. And so you can see the co the context of their, of this area of northern Afghanistan where Team Alpha was operating in the overall context of Afghanistan. Dude, and, the then there's, and then there's the actual Daria Suf Valley, Masri Sharif, and northern Afghanistan. So it's so it's sort of all there and it's and there's where things happened and the dates are on there and where they where they were dropped by the Black Hawks and where they ended up. It's it's all there. Yeah. Uh, for just this reason, because, you know, we're our brains, you know, we are visual sort of people. And I can't really understand things often without a map in front of me. When the team went in and this line, I lit, it's funny, man. I remember where I was driving. <laughs> I'm at five points. So you talk about like, you know, ocean view. Five points is when yep. you come down route one, you take a left to go to Lewis, you keep going straight. I remember literally where I was when the um, alpha team, and feel free to correct me every time I make a mistake about your book. Um, when the alpha team gets dropped and it's like, I believe it was like nine guys go into an area the size of South Carolina. That's right, yes. And yeah. you're like, that for some reason, I just traveled to South Carolina actually. And I'm like, just walking yeah. around Charleston and then I can scale it out to be like, they're getting dropped into this area the size of this state. What? Where do you even start? What do you do? Who do you trust? Well, so I'm glad you noticed that because again, for me to understand it. So what I did was I, um, I worked out, you know, I, I knew the provinces that they covered. And so I went onto Wikipedia or <laughs> Encyclopedia Britannica, or whatever. And I got the area of each province. And I added them together and then I compared that with US states and I thought, ah, South Carolina. And and that helped me understand because you need people need to be able to uh see things in context. And that to me that was the, the context. So uh, so I'm glad that was helpful and memorable. Dude, so there's so much context, and I don't want to be disrespectful to the people. So part of it too, I found myself feeling like they were characters and not yeah. people. Because it's, it's just story after story and you start thinking, or at least I did, I started thinking of them as characters. So I don't want to be disrespectful to the people who were involved, 
but I believe the one gentleman, the first CIA operator who passed away, was his name Mike? He, Mike Spahn, yeah. And then his ex-wife had also just found out about like her cancer treatment. Right, she died the following month. Fucking A, man. When that happened, like I kept waiting for like the Disney ending to be like, no, they're yeah, going to yeah. find him. It's going to be okay. Or like the, the silver lining and the context of the enormity. And then you start thinking of the children. It's just, yeah. th those are the kind of details where it's more than just like a war. It's more than just a mission. You, you really yeah. humanize the, the gravity and the sacrifice that happened for to, to so many people. Yeah, well, I'm so, I'm a great believer in the saying. I think I think it was Samuel Johnson that said it. You know, the best the best stories are true. I think it was Samuel Johnson, um, and that's why I love nonfiction mm. because when you go into it, you know, I had an idea of, you know, I knew that Mike Spann had been killed on November 25th, 2001. I knew about CIA Team Alpha. Uh, I think I knew that there were eight members of it. I knew they were the first behind enemy lines after after 9-11. And then, you know, early on, I found out that one of them was a Green Beret. And, you know, I knew that David Tyson, who's really in some ways, apart from Mike Spann, the central figure, I knew that he'd been an academic and he was a linguist. But I didn't know them as people and I hadn't met, met them yet. But as soon as I started interviewing them and then, getting to know them, I realized that these were incredible people with amazing lives, but also in some ways, ordinary lives as well. You know, they were all different. <laughs> there were great variety. You know, they ranged in age from, you know, I think 49 to uh, 29 at the time. Some were paramilitaries, you know, former special forces. There was a ranger, there was a guy from 82nd Airborne previously. One was a medic. Um, you know, one had, was, had been an enlisted artilleryman, but very varied. Two of them were linguists, case officers, but, you know, very varied. And I wanted to, that's why I was, I concentrated on the eight of them. And there are lots of other people who are Green Berets. There's a SEAL, the Special Boat Service, uh, guys from, from Great Britain. There's air crew, you know, there's the Afghans, but... At the center of it, these eight CIA officers or seven CIA officers and Green Berets, eight people on the team, um, they're the sort of, they're the central figures. And I, you know, I, w I wanted to write it like a movie in a way, partly because you hope it will be a movie. Dude, but you can, it, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but you, you nailed that. The way the chapters split and you set up the scenes, you can picture the settings and you're just waiting for it to get tied together. Right. Man, brilliant. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm a fanboy. I, I, I won't. No, not at all. But like, I mean, that, dude, that's, that, that's that sort of great. That's deliberate because there's a vast amount of detail in there. And there's a lot of stuff that isn't in there that I, I know. And I was, you know, I was, my editor was pretty tough with me and I was tough with myself <laughs> to keep the, keep the through line, you know, keep the central kind of narrative, plot there and have you know little things that go off it but don't go off on big tangents or just because i'd done an interview with a great guy who told me you know an amazing story if it wasn't essential to the narrative to to have the discipline to sort of uh cut it out but you know I, but i did want to 
you know, I've read lots of books about, you know, war books where it's just, it's sort of bang, bang, everyone's brave and there's all this, you know, lead flying and all the rest of it. And there certainly is that in First Casualty and that's a part of it. But I think people's previous lives, um, their home situation, uh, you know, where they came from, what type of people they were, uh, their fear as well as their bravery, their, their doubts, their mistakes, all those things to me, you know, if, if you watch a movie, that's what you want in the characters. You want three-dimensional characters with um, that you sort of that you sort of bring to life. And so, that, so I, I tried very hard to do that and, and have it not be just bang bang and and not be a dry sort of acad academic tome where you know you just jump dr sort of dump a ton of information on the reader and still say well you, you sort it out you know i think that's yeah. the author's job to distill it and and sort it out the cia and it, feel free anytime i say something like spoilerish that i shouldn't you can just be like ah and i'll stop immediately <laughs> don't but worry there was um when there was the cia training and i first i thought it was going to be like this weird love triangle and i might oh god i can't remember i believe it was was it mike and the two ladies and the cricket story. <laughs> so that was Mike, Mike Span, who met his wife, subsequently Shannon Span. I think she was Shannon Verleur at the time. The one who was too um, good for him, according to the lady that he actually Yeah, that was, was Amy, who's, who's, who's still a good friend of Shannon's and is still serving in the CIA. Yes. Um, so but yes, that's right. <laughs> that little bit. I feel like if it was a movie, I feel like that's something that could get cut out. But I, in the book, it's something that I loved because it made it so wholesome and right. it developed the relationship that you can now understand. It, you just got that emotional attachment where, it, I don't know, man, it was a great little anecdote. Well, and also, I guess this is spoilerish, but one of the things about the book is it's called First Casualty. We know the Mike's band. Uh, was killed and so in a way the the sort of dramatic there's no dramatic surprise in there and we also know that uh, the Taliban fell and it was a successful mission but the reason Amy's important is because well she was there at the beginning of their relationship uh, which was only in 1999 I mean all this happened incredibly quickly yeah that was the craziest part when, yeah at the funeral when she was speak his um wife was speaking yeah. and was like I wanted to speak because I wanted to continue to like be there though I wasn't really there with him right. you're like fuck that's right man you guys were you didn't really know each other yet. yeah and then he passed away and Amy was designated by Mike to be the person and Shannon knew this to be the person to tell her if Mike was killed. And so, so Amy was also, because Shannon was on, on parental leave um, because she just had a baby when Mike was in Afghanistan. So she was at, so she was a CIA officer, but she was, wasn't working day to day. So Amy was a sort of important link person between Shannon and Mike because she was in CIA headquarters. So she was able to, put together care packages and she would be reading all the cables, which she could talk about to Shannon because Shannon was also a serving CIA officer. So she was the link person there. And then when Mike was missing, initially missing him and he was killed immediately, but it wasn't confirmed that he was dead. 
uh, Amy was the person that the CIA sent to California. And so as soon as Amy turned up on Shannon's doorstep, she knew it was really bad yeah. news. And then Amy stepped up and was the sort of handler and chaperone for Shannon and keeping people away and, and dealing with it all. And she and, and Amy was at a funeral wearing a red wig because she was undercover and there was loads of press there and sunglasses. So for, for me, she, Amy was a relatively minor character, but she was there at the beginning and she was there at the end and she had this role in between, which made helped to sort of knit the whole thing together. So, you know, when I came across people like that, sometimes the tingle would come down my spine because I would realize how it all fitted together. And it, it was just literally the, the truth being better than fiction. It, it, it seriously is. Um, the way, the way David, and I don't know, I'm assuming, and you can definitely tell me when the recall after the attack at the pink house, right? Which yes. was the school building. Yes. Right? So the attack at the pink house, the Trojan horse, which like I yeah. saw coming and I, I that, that's part of me being like, how the fuck are you letting all these people in? Right. But I know. So the recalling of him going through his PTSD while going back for Mike, the detail in there, I didn't yeah. want in a movie. I wanted to be just words and me filling in those images. Yeah. What did that come from like interviews with David or these reports that you wound up reading through? How was it so detailed? So was that was principally uh, many, many hours of interviewing David. So, you know, I would interview him. And the other thing about this was none of this was guaranteed at the start. I mean, I had right. met David in 2013. I sort of searched for him and, and found him. And he was actually living in Vienna, uh, Vienna, Virginia, very close to where I am now. But he was KG, unsurprisingly. I was a journalist. He was still serving in CIA, so he, he couldn't really talk. But then 2020, he retired and... Initially, he was reticent. He said, yeah, I'll talk and it's COVID and I'm at home and I'm just cleaning out my attic. And so it felt like <laughs> the environment was good. No doubt. But, you know, obviously he's he's a professional intelligence officer. So he's, you know, he's sounding me out, working out where I'm coming from. Am I, am I going to screw him over? Am I going to take sort of cheap shots? At, and then he was also, I think, he was concerned that it wouldn't be a book just about him, that it would be about the team. Team Alpha, and it would be about the overall American effort, and it would be about Mike's fan. So it took time for him to warm up. But I was getting some great stuff initially. But as I got to know him, you know, better and better over the course of a year, 18 months, you know, at the end, I would be, he, he moved into rural Virginia, and I'd go and stay at his house. And we'd sit up until midnight talking you know, out on his deck and, and then we start again the next morning. And so he's a very intelligent guy. He's very thoughtful. He's, he went through an incredibly traumatic episode in his life and he's searching for the answers. He's searching for the bits that he calls it God's video that are missing. And he's thought deep, he's done therapy. He's, he's, you know, he's led a very effective and happy and productive life, but he's had to work at it. And he's, I think, constantly examining what he went through, how he's reacted to it, 
in the moment and, and in the year since. And so that enabled me to sort of build up this, I thought, incredible picture of the psychology of somebody both in the moment, in the immediate aftermath, and then in the years afterwards. And there were layers of that that I don't think many people would be able to communicate in, in an interview or in interviews. And, um, but there were also some documents and very late on, David let me know that he had, he'd kept a diary. <laughs> so he no says your diary. And, and so, and he'd written down, he'd written down a lot of stuff in almost real time. So he'd been processing it in that way. Oh my God. So that enabled me to cross reference or the some things that were mentioned in the diary that he hadn't mentioned. Also other people had given statements and then there were people who was, who would remember like Justin Sapp. I remember saying that when he first saw David that night, that he was, um, he was sort of drooling and snorting and like, he was like a, I think he, he said he was like a horse that just finished the Kentucky Derby. Now, so there were other people's impressions as well. And then Alex, who was the deputy chief of team alpha, you know, he talked about how, David was starting to think that maybe Mike was alive because somebody had said they'd seen him leave. Yeah. And so David was going into, as part of the traumatic response, I think was going into a little bit of denial. And so Alex described that to me, that he said, like, Dave, is Mike dead? And he, and he, and he said, David said, yes. And so I was able to, um, you know, talk to David and say, well, this is what Alex said. And so the process of those many interviews, cross-reference, cross-referencing with the diary, and then the accounts of other people, meant that in the end, I felt that I was able to give a very layered account of of what he'd been through. How, like, are you allowed to keep a diary as a CIA person? I feel like that would be illegal. They weren't supposed to. They weren't supposed to keep di diaries, right? But. But one of the one of the funny things uh, about CIA officers, and I've got to know a lot of them, is many of them are probably most of them are very independent people. They're very self confident, and they're patriots, and they mostly believe very strongly in the organization. But David, for instance, and a number of others, but David, he you know he hates bureaucracy. He hates being told what to do. He does. He does his own thing. Now, I think within, in the case of David, within certainly, um, you know, parameters. Uh, but you know, he's his own person. And you know, I was. I remember my taught by my dad. You know, rules are for the uh, the guidance of wise men and the obedience of fools. I remember him telling me that. You know. And that's fucking great. which doesn't mean you pick and choose. It doesn't mean you uh, you don't you just break rules just for the sake of it. But it means you take them into account and you act accordingly. And so I think David felt. I mean, he could speak for himself, but I think David felt well. You know, Al Qaeda's not going to find my diary, and so I'm just going to keep. A, I'm just going to keep a few notes with me. Dude, that. I kept going there um, and not to make it about me, but as a teacher and then dealing with administrators who aren't in the classroom. 
I just kept connecting the scenario and it's nowhere as like dire, right? It's nowhere as severe. Yeah. But I kept thinking about these CIA guys, like when the, the Rumsfeld story about the way he didn't even realize how he was like communicating that was messing up the translator and then it yeah. had to go back and get fixed. And you're like, you gotta trust and you gotta trust the people on the ground because they're dealing with the ground day. They have the relationships. Yeah. Or maybe you have the theory, but you don't know yeah. what it's like in practice. So I, yeah. I feel like that trait would, that independence would almost lead to your most effective Oh, CIA very definitely. Agent. Very definitely. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about this period, so immediately after 9-11, Team Alpha gets into Afghanistan October 17th, 2001. And so this plan and this mission has been hastily put together now they do have some experience in afghanistan david's been in and out because he's been based in tashkent jr who's the chief diary speaker he'd worked out of islamabad with the mujahideen in the 1980s so they did have afghan expertise but they didn't really know each other before in four of them were on a paramilitary team but the others were added on and many of them had just met each other in uzbekistan on the way in but they all had their different skill sets. And at CIA headquarters, so Kofa Black was the head of the counterterrorism center. Uh, Hank Crompton was the guy who was running the war day to day. And I interviewed both of them. And they told me that it was, it was an incredibly flat sort of command structure. And so later on, as the war got more entrenched and more troops and all the rest of it, you had layers of, you know, authorization for every decision. But in 2001, in this mission, and I think it's one of the reasons it worked so well, mm. is it was the guys on the ground. And so they were making decisions of, I don't know, strategic importance. And Hank Crompton was okay. You know, he, 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 was, he wasn't telling them what to do. I mean, in a way, he was... He was um, he was being kept informed by them about what was going on so that he could brief the CIA director or actually President Bush yeah. directly. But he wasn't saying, hey, this is this is what you're going to do. Because, as you say, they were the people on the ground. Dude, how could you? I, like, I, I start thinking of all these different tribes. And part of what I love about the book, too, is like you do a great job keeping us in the present, but then also helping us understand how the past led to all these power dynamics that are yeah. just it dude it reminded me of like the states battling for like in the union like what state's yeah. going to be the most important oh new york because we got a port no well georgia because we have agriculture and you have all these tribes acting like they can give you what you want and the enemy of my enemy is my friend and who hates the taliban the most how can we know you hate them the most and these dudes are attached and making these decisions. And if you're not around them, if you're not there seeing people in the eye and just getting a vibe, yeah. how could you tell someone who is there in front having tea, right? Like riding with these people marching. How can you tell them, nah, that's probably a bad call. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. Yeah. So far removed, man. It's, um, yeah. I, I loved David as he was portrayed in the book and not, not saying it was fake, but that's why it, it seemed so from where he started, like being on the plane and just being a dude who was like really smart and into basketball. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he turns into this, um, like a fucking war hero character. It's... Well, again, I mean, one of the things that attracted me to the story. So I first, I heard about the story at the time. I was in DC on nine eleven, and I was covering. I mean, much to my frustration, because I wanted to get out to Afghanistan. But I was covering U.S. politics for, I guess, nearly two years after nine eleven. So, you know, I remember Mike Spann being killed. I remember Shannon Spann speaking at the funeral. Um, but I was in Iraq a couple of years later and somebody said, do you ever see the footage of that other CIA guy the, who was with Mike Spann? I hadn't seen it. It was David Tyson. Um, and I remember seeing the video of him. It was German TV footage and he was running across the northern half of the fort and he had a pistol in one hand, a Kalashnikov in the other. He was wearing this amalgam of Afghan gear and American gear. And then when he bursts into the headquarters building on the northern end of the fort, he's just killed all these Al-Qaeda guys. He's seen Mike Spann being killed. And, he, and I remember his staring eyes, talk about the thousand-yard stare. And I thought, this is just incredible. Now, I looked into it, read a bit around it, and I realized that he wasn't an elite warrior. He wasn't a former SEAL or Delta yeah. Force. He'd been an artilleryman. He'd been an ROTC intelligence officer. So he had military experience, but not much. He wasn't an elite warrior. He wasn't like super in shape. He didn't have all the cool gear. And of the eight, I mean, David would readily admit this, of the eight, he's probably the last of the eight that you would have wanted to be in that situation because he didn't have the experience. I mean, Alex was a special forces sergeant major. Scott had been a ranger in Mogadishu, who'd been wounded. You know, Glenn was special forces medic. Andy, who's still serving, was special forces reservist. I mean, there were all these you know, guys with a lot of combat experience and elite military experience. David wasn't the one, but he was the one it happened to. He was the person, I mean, Mike was killed. I mean, Mike was, you know, had been a Marine Corps officer, supremely fit, kind of aggressive, gung-ho guy, but he stood no chance. I mean, he took a few with him before they killed him, but... Um, but David was in this position where he was sort of 50 yards away or so. And, you know, I've done a number of events with David and he doesn't say this himself. He just says, I was on autopilot. It was muscle memory. But to me, you know, the Afghans were running in the opposite direction, but he ran towards the gunfire. He ran towards Mike Spann when Mike Spann shouted his name, even though he must have known on some level he was running towards probable death but he did it and you know there was certainly some luck on his side there were grenades bouncing off him that didn't explode obviously lots of shots were taken out and that missed um but he functioned and he was in this kill or be killed situation and he killed and he he did it which to, and to me you know, most of us in life, thankfully, will never be tested in that way. Yeah. But there was part of him. He was a CI officer. He was a gifted linguist. He was former military. But there was an element of David that was also, I felt, every man. You know, he was, in some respects, in the best sense of the word, he was an ordinary, regular person in this extraordinary, squared situation. And he stepped up and he did it. And, and to me, I, I found that absolutely fascinating. So the audio book, I was actually bike riding another time I was listening at early on when 
the CIA agent, the first CIA agent killed an Afghanistan or some trooper coming at them and took the bayonet that was from like 1903. Yes. But something happened and the book skipped like a minute and a half. So I didn't oh. know who actually made the shot. And then because I was bike riding, I was on a highway. <laughs> I got like freaked out about like rewinding it. Was that? So that was David. That's okay. So that That's was, how I filled it That in. was in the Darussou Valley. So in sort of early November. So they, they captured Mazari Sharif on November the 10th. And Mike Spam was killed November 25th. So I think I called that chapter First Blood. Yeah. Or at least at some stage, it was called First Blood. And so David, because he was a linguist, would often be the only American or the only CIA officer with these Northern Alliance Uzbek fighters. And so this was an occasion where uh, they came across a bunch of Al-Qaeda fighters and they stood their ground and David killed a couple of them. He, you know, picked them off with his AK-47. And again, you're talking, talking about rules. The sort of, not an order, but the general direction was you don't need to be firing your weapons. You're not here to, uh, to be a soldier. You're here to gather intelligence. The Afghans are doing fighting. But David, I mean, I think four out of the eight ended up firing their weapons on occasion. So obviously there's situations in extremists where you, you know, you're under attack and you've got a weapon and you, and you fire it. But I think with David, and this was part of the point of that passage, David was always wanted to be, I think, sort of part of the tribe and, or part of the posse, I think is how I put it in the book. And it's just part of his bonding with the Afghans and winning them over, which I think was a significant part of this mission in a way he felt was he was going to do what they were going to do. And so if they were going to, fight al-Qaeda and kill al-Qaeda, he was going to do it as well. And um, he was sort of, it was almost an out-of-body experience where he's like, shit, I just killed somebody. Right. You know, like, I, you know, I've killed, you know, um, small animals hunting with my father and, but I did it. I just, I just killed somebody. Wow. And and then he, he, um, and he still got the bayonet. He, he went and took, um, a uh, a bayonet off um uh off off one of the the al-qaeda fighters that he killed and um and it was a 1913 remington uh british bayonet and uh, so i don't know what the history of that piece of weaponry was but anyway he still got it and it's now in his attic in rural That's virginia yeah, just just apparently another country that thought they could get into Afghanistan and take it over at some point, right? Like that's right. That's the insane part that I keep getting intrigued by. And it's a little bit of a side note, but like the history of this country, I guess ge geographically, like everybody wanting to kind of dominate it, to think that they have the military to go in there and yeah. control it. And it's like, I've, it's it's kind of untamed. It's meant to be feral. Like it's not meant to be controlled. It seems like it's meant to have all these little pockets because the geography will not just simply not allow it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so J.R. Seeger, the team alpha chief talks about this a lot and he, he maintains Afghanistan isn't a country. It's a collection of tribes and ethnicities. You know, in the winter, you can't get from Mazari Sharif in the North, which is where a lot of the action is, is set to Kabul. And 
it's just sort of a conceit of other countries that this is a country. Now, of course, we spent 20 years after this uh, trying to build a country or persuade the Afghans that they were part of a centralized democracy. And that's a whole other story. But uh, but absolutely, I for me, that's one of the takeaways of this, you know, that the, the British have been there before, the Soviets have been there, the Americans were in, and we won pretty quickly in the first few months of 2001. And I'm not saying anything, any of this is easy, but uh, I think that was the time to to leave or to have a small footprint. Hundreds of Americans were there in 2001, not 100,000 plus as we had later. And so the formula was kind of right. But once you have the big you know, army divisions coming in and you're building bases and infrastructure, then clearly you are then now the invader. Before really it was Al-Qaeda that was the invader. Yeah. And, um, and the Americans were helping the indigenous allies. So, yeah, I mean, Afghanistan, graveyard of empires and all that. I mean, I think it's, it's, that's true. Yeah, it, it made me wonder, like, there's they were probably picking up Russian stuff from, what, 1980s? Oh, and, certainly, and yeah, And using yeah, yeah. it against us in the 2000s. You know, like, you just imagine them finding these scraps of things and being like, could this be useful? Yeah, I'll use this. Well, Kalajangi, where the, which was, the, you know, the fort of war, the the fort where Mike Spam was killed, where there was this prisoner uprising. I mean, that was full of weapons. And that had been a Taliban armory and base up until November the 10th. Previously, it had been a, a, a Soviet base. Obviously, at that point, it was in the hands of the Northern Alliance. So some of these weapons had been Afghan government pre-1979. Then they'd been Russian. Then they'd gone over to Taliban. Then they'd gone over to the Northern Alliance. They're probably back in the hands of the Taliban. So, I mean, sometimes I think, like, talk about that bayonet, what story that could tell. Yeah. Some of the weapons in Afghanistan, the stories they could tell of who they've been fired by and where they've been. And the same goes for armored vehicles, tanks, helicopters. This stuff is always changing hands. Yeah, that, that was super striking to me that... My, my, I just kept being aware of like the logistical ignorance that I have as an American for things like roads and stores and bullets and just means to get things in certain places. It's like these, these people are like maintaining their country and they're doing it by like, yeah, they, they get armed, but they also kind of like go through the scrap heap. <laughs> Oh and, yeah, and they piecemeal these like military troops together, and they're super effective. It was a right. little bit in me where I was like, "Damn, that's impressive compared yeah. to what you're going against." Because yeah, we got radios and we can drop bombs, which was our might. But like yeah. without that, I, I I don't know, man. Like I kept thinking, without the bombs, do you even have a chance? Well, the bombs, the U.S. air power in this, you know, in these early weeks and months. That was the thing that changed the battlefield. So you had these 19th century cavalry charges from these, you know, uh, soldiers on horseback, Afghan soldiers on horseback, with the Americans beside them. But but they'd been doing that before, before 9-11, and they were losing. In fact, they were about to be wiped out. What made the difference was the Green Berets who came in three days after the CIA and 
they brought Air Force air controllers in with them, and it was difficult to work out. But once they once they got it kind of coordinated, uh, having being able to have those horse charges and then have airstrikes being called in, that was curtains for the Taliban. Dude, was the the shit talking of the and I correct me if I'm um like insulting anybody, the tribe the Northern Alliance leaders that would like taunt right before the airstrikes? Yes. Like that was like they just get on the radio and be like you're going to get killed by an American woman. Listen to yeah. her right now. Like they would literally taunt the yeah. Taliban. So again, in Afghanistan, history of changing sides and, and sort of knowing your enemy as well. And so Dostum, who was the the warlord from central casting, a lot of blood on his hands, you know, terrible reputation. State departments never allowed him into the United States, you know, in the past two decades. Um, you know, he knew a lot of these Taliban commanders. And Dostum himself was notorious for switching sides. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it was kind of like psyop, psychological operations where you taunt your opponent, you try and demean him, you try and persuade him to sw switch sides. You've obviously got a lot of CIA money available as well. And so, yeah, that's part of the, part of the whole thing, um, which, again, you know, better than fiction i felt it's it's almost unbelievable like it it really is if for me to put myself in that situation but again like if i had the cia on my side and i knew the cia was about to drop a fucking 2000 pound bomb yeah. or a couple 500 pound bombs on my enemies i might like get on, i might do a podcast and talk a little bit of shit right before yeah, yeah, because yeah. the power has to be exhilarating if what you've had before are horses and some, you know, whatever, machine guns, handguns. Yeah, yeah. You know? Absolutely. Dude, him, uh, was that the same guy that had a great line about, like, I am sophisticated. I've owned two Cadillacs or something? That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was Dostum talking to JR. And to this day, JR isn't sure whether, whether Dostum was telling a joke or whether he was being serious or some kind of mixture. Right. But uh, Dawson's, Dawson had, I mean, I interviewed him in November, 2020. Uh, he's, uh, you know, his staff insists that he can write, but there's, you know, he left school, I think at 13 or 14. Mm. And he certainly isn't well-educated, but he's one of these, uh, I mean, you don't survive until it must be almost 70 now. You don't survive to that age as an Afghan warlord without, you know, being clever to some degree. But he sort of lived on his wits. And I think he had, has that sort of instinctive um, kind of intelligence that, that you need to survive. How do you feel interviewing him? Which, by the way, I, I love the way the book wraps up how it, you get these interviews later on. Like, and you get to hear them reflect back on what you as a reader have just gone through. So it's like the next day for you. And then you have to stop and realize this is like fucking 20 years later for yeah. them. And they're so like, I thought very hard about that because I don't like to um, insert myself into books because sometimes I'll read books 
and it'll be, you know, it opens and it's a journalist on an embed and journalist. And I, I always think it's not about the journalists, it's about the people. And also I wasn't there in 2001. Um, but my editors persuaded me that that was the best way to do it because I was, you know, traveling to Afghanistan and seeing the places and, and, and interviewing some of the protagonists, um, you know, tw as you say, 20 years later. And I also thought David in his town, you know, getting to know the guy that made the fences and stuff. Yeah. Again, learning about another tribe, I thought was, it was very striking to me. And so, yes, so, and again, and the other thing was, it was about the events of 2001. So I didn't want to excessively, I didn't want to tell, try and tell the story of the subsequent 20 years. Uh, and I didn't want too much hindsight. But on the other hand, um, 20 years later, which was coming, we knew that, even when the book was going to press, we knew that that the US was going to pull out. It was I thought it was a a time for reflection, bringing people up to date with what their lives were like afterwards. And so I, yeah, I hope the intention was to sort of tie things together by doing that. Dude, I I, I could not have picked a, or I, I don't know. I'm not a super clever man. I'm not as witty as an Afghan warlord. But like <laughs> I I I couldn't think of a better way to end it because I didn't want it to end. I wanted to know what happens after. What yeah. are the repercussions of all these choices? And then there's nothing better when like powerful, influential people have the time and space to think back and like reflect and give you those insights. Yeah. And yeah. How were you? No, I mean it was incredible sitting in in Dostum's I was guest house, a guest house, but it's pretty nice building, certainly by Afghan standards, you know, with all these sort of walls painted green and all these kind of gold chandeliers and big plates of like pistachio nuts and uh you know things to nibble on um and this guy you know i'd heard so much about and who was this figure from afghan history who also killed a lot of people um and you know he had a real presence about it and uh yeah, it was it was it was fascinating, and it was pretty hard to get the interview. And I had to do a lot of persuading. I had to, um, you know, I had to get my visa. It was during COVID. I had to persuade his people that, uh, you know, I had to sort of intimate to them without saying it that it was going to be a friendly interview, you know. But obviously, you do that when you need to get in there, um, and the portrayal, I think you know, has to be honest and, and, and was honest, but you do a lot of buttering people up and everything. And then all of a sudden, well, and then I had to wait for two weeks in Kabul where they kept on saying, he maybe he's coming to Kabul, maybe you can go up to Shebagan. And then it took, and then because the Taliban controlled a lot of the territory there, I had to wait more than a week to get from Mazari Sharif, which is just a short drive to Shebagan, but I had to get up uh, um, a plane there wait for a plane so um yeah it was a great moment when all of a sudden here, here he is you know the the i don't know whether it was a capital like maybe it was actually a, a suburban but it swept in <laughs> and then dawson's getting out and you know the interview's on dude and that's the same guy that like by the end was asking for seven million dollars a month right yes yeah that would be right yeah so yeah, yeah. Like, oh, he, how yeah. much did you guys have to pay him to get some time with him i didn't pay anything <laughs> but I guess he, I mean, 
actually, I think it's the most recent interview he's done. And he nearly he nearly died, ironically enough, last summer. He nearly died of COVID. Oh. Um, but anyway, he's still he's still alive. But I don't think anybody's done a proper interview with him since then. And he wanted to get his message out, which was the same message he'd had for a number of years, which is to the Americans that to put their trust in him again, and he could yeah. sort the Taliban out if they gave him the opportunity. Because it's a great story, but to make it a little bit about... Actually, can I ask one really stupid question? Because you brought no up No questions are stupid. They're only stupid answers. So when I went to Mexico, I was taken back by how differently the bananas tasted mm-hmm. <laughs> compared to the ones I eat in the States, right? Like, I, like I'd never had fucking fruit like that. So yeah. I'm very curious, the pistachios or the snacks... <laughs> was there like the pistachio just in general? Was it any kind of different or was it the same that you would get at like a supermarket and you'd crack open yourself and taste? Um, it was pretty It was um, pretty similar. But actually, I went to the market and I brought back a big bag of pistachios because they are cheaper over there. They're pretty expensive <laughs> in Giant over here. Yeah, they are. I don't know about in Delaware, but the Giant around here is pretty expensive. Um, and uh, But they they sort of had um they were very heavily salted hmm. so i don't know i think maybe they've been they've been washed in salt water and then and then they maybe been dried in the sun so they were kind of encrusted with salt but i like i quite like salt so they were very salted but gotcha. i enjoyed them gotcha gotcha thank you for that that's good insider info <laughs> um you just as a person like you trusted this guy to go over there because to me that's a weird dilemma well it's funny because somebody said to me, um, basically, you're with the Sopranos. <laughs> and it did feel a bit like that. So in, in Masri Sharif and in Shebagan, which is non-Pashtun, and so it's mainly Uzbeks and Tajiks and Hazaras who were extremely anti-Taliban. And so they were sort of surrounded by Taliban in the countryside. But... Um, in, in those two cities, uh, Dostum or Atar, who was the Tajik warlord, they kind of held sway. And so I was accompanied by a small truck full of armed men from Dostum, wherever I went. And that was mostly reassuring <laughs> because nobody was going to mess with them. Um, but uh, But it was also, it could be frustrating because... They had all their own kind of dynamics going on. And so it was very hard to get into Kalajangi because it was it was under the control of the Afghan National Army and there was a Pashtun general there and Dostum didn't have too much influence with him and I think he didn't want to upset him and he maybe didn't want to lose face. And so I kept on getting fobbed off. They were saying, oh, we go to... Kalajangi, you know, tomorrow, and then tomorrow be, oh, maybe we'll go the next day. Oh, somebody's sick, you can't go. And so for a part of it, I was starting to feel, listen, if I was just on my own, if I was just a journalist on my own with a fixer, translator, I'd be like, we need to go to Kalajangi, you need to make it happen, and let's just do it. And so I sort of felt almost a little bit like a prisoner at times when I had to, I had to do what they wanted to do. And at a certain point with Kalajangi, 
I was basically like, I said to them, like, they, you know, they said, you know, you, we can't go today, we're going to go tomorrow, but they'd already promised me and I'd be waiting all day. And I was getting worried it wasn't going to happen. So I was like, fuck this, I'm going to get a taxi. And I walked out and, and then they were like, oh, you wait, 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 oh, okay. And so there's a bit of sort of gamesmanship and, and stuff. Um, and, you know, a bit like in 2001, the last thing they want is an American getting killed on their watch because Dostum would be extremely unhappy with them. And so they kind of, they accommodated me and then, and then, and then they took me. And there were all these excuses about, oh, we won't get let in and, um, and it was fine, you know, cause I, and I, I knew it would be, but, um, but, uh, yeah, but it's difficult because you have to, you also have to judge when they're serious, when it really is dangerous or when, when there is a genuine reason you can't go somewhere and when they're just using that as an excuse. So I, I guess experience, uh, you know, and a bit of sort of gut instinct, you know, you have to factor that in. Yeah, dude, I'm just thinking that. of the language issue. So I'm assuming you have a translator, right? Yeah, but it was diff it was difficult because I had to. Um, yes, I had because th these were, people were speaking Uzbek. The only person I know who speaks Uzbek is David Tyson, and um, he wasn't going to be going there as a recently retired CIA officer who'd been extensively shown on video in 2001. Um, so. I had to get in Masri Sharif, I had to use a translator that was provided by Dostum. And, uh, you know, some, I had more than one of them and some of them weren't that good. So their English wasn't that good. And so then it's frustrating um, because, you know, people give you long answers and then the translation is four words. That's just a common issue with being a journalist in these places when you don't speak the language. But I recorded interviews, so I was able to bring back the Uzbek and run it past uh, David and actually an Afghan American who's here to do some translation. But yeah, it was complicated. Dude, I, this goes off my original point, but like that must be a little bit of a chuckle fest for them when like they hear some Uzbek and they hear some shit translation and they're oh, like, yeah, oh, yeah, this yeah, guy yeah, totally yeah. played Well, you. I just remember in Iraq, <laughs> um, it was, yeah, it was really frustrating because I remember one time when there'd been some massacre or something and I was there and I was, we've, we've, we found the, uh, the, the brother of somebody who'd been killed. And so I said to the translator, ask him how he feels about his brother being killed. And, and so the, the guy was, you know, he spoke for, seemed like several minutes. He's gesticulating, he's crying, you know, he's all this, you know, heartfelt um, kind of words about what happened. And, you know, one of the things when that's happening is you, or you want the translator to be translating every two or three sentences because otherwise they can't remember it. Mm. And so sometimes they take notes. And, but, uh, you know, so I kept on gesticulating to the, translator like what's he saying what's he saying and then he turned to me and said he he say he very sad his brother dead <laughs> and i'm like jesus well I probably didn't say it, but you know jesus fucking christ you know he's just been speaking for several minutes you know he's weeping he's you know he's beating his chest he's you know probably threatening to you know kill the people that killed his brother and you're just telling me he's sad that his brother's dead yeah. um so but that's just you have to you know, you ask the question again, 
you try and tease out from the translator. But that's just one of the the downsides and one of the things you have to contend with with reporting overseas. Yeah, so like immediately in my head, I went stupid and I was like, one star for this translator, never hiring him again. You know, like it's just well, like an Uber the, the other thing is, driver. But like, so, what's the pool like? Do you have well, a ton of options? So, well, that's a good point because <laughs> in Iraq in 2004, for instance, you know, every media organization in the world is there. And so, you know, it's the US Network TV, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, all those people, they're sort of more prestigious, they've got more money, and they get all the really good translators. Mm. And then, and the market is completely distorted. So you're getting people who, their English is sort of okay, they can get by, um, but all of a sudden they know that they can earn, I don't know, $100 a day, um, you know, 15 years ago, to be a translator. So... And we needed them, so you can get people who are who are pretty ropey, and you just have to you just have to make do. And obviously, if somebody's really bad, then uh, you try and get someone else, and you uh, you know you're always asking around whether you can share someone else's translator. But it's just part of getting by, you know. It's like you guys need your own CIA ops on the ground for you to have these connections. Well. Ideally, if you get a good translator, fixer, that's what you've got. And also you need the safety involved and uh, ethnicity and, you know, tribal connections. That's part of it as well. So, you know, in Iraq, if you were going into Fallujah, you know, you really wanted a Sunni translator, fixer who knew the, the Sunnis. You didn't want a Shia going in there who... Uh, well, they might kill, and um, you know, would be would, often the Shia were pretty scared to go into the, the hardcore sunny areas. So you have all these things that you're you're juggling, as well as just your writing and reporting. Yeah, how do you get acclimated to that? How much research you just happen to know it because you just kind of been around it by osmosis style? It's just sort of experience, really, and hopefully native sort of wit and resourcefulness. But, you, you know, you get used to going into places that are unfamiliar and just getting on with it and working it out. And you hopefully have the humility to learn. And there are really experienced people there, other reporters who've got uh, better languages than you or more experience. And you, I used to, you know, watch and listen to them and sometimes try and team up with them. And then hopefully, you know, over the years, you sort of become one of those people where you think, okay, so I may not know this country particularly well, but this feels like the situation I faced in, you know, this other country and this is how I'm going to deal with it. So did you learn the taxi cab move from somebody? Was, did you pull that out from somewhere else or were you like legitimately just fed up and you were like, fuck it, I'm ready to go home in this interview? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, it was partly just genuine because I was really, gen- I was frustrated. I wasn't play acting. I, I would have got a taxi and gone there. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I guess when I did it, I did think that it was going to um, sort of force them into action. And I knew that on some level that Dostum wouldn't allow me to go, wouldn't allow them to allow me to go to Kalajangi on my own. So I don't know. 
Yeah. And so just geographically, almost going back to that map part, because I do remember towards the end, and I think you had mentioned it, it was like a 90 minute ride if there weren't any issues. But now with all the issues, it could take hours on hours and you actually had to do like a helicopter there. Yes, that's so, right. Yeah. So when you said you were going to take a taxi, are you going through that part that actually should be done, should be traveled by helicopter? No, no, no. That was just within. There? That was just basically across Masri Sharif, the city of Masri Sharif. So probably a 20 minute taxi ride. Um, not the full drive to Shevagan. So I wasn't, I wasn't going to get a taxi through Taliban territory. Got you. Because that would have been really stupid. And uh, I try not to do that. But this was just, it was still within, uh, I mean, they were trying to tell me there were Taliban around Kalajangi. I don't think there were. Um, and I saw no evidence of it. So as far as I was concerned, I was just crossing the city in a taxi. And we've been driving all over the city. So, uh, so I because you'd been there for a while, you just kind of got a vibe for what was going yeah, on. Yeah, you found yeah, the patterns. yeah, yeah, yeah. What would be the evidence that would have been, that you would have noticed about the Taliban? Well, you can tell, well, certainly if there'd been any evidence of like checkpoints or, you know, um, black turbans or any of that, but just pa Pashtuns, basically, if there'd been like, if there'd been Pashtuns and you can pretty easily tell the difference between a Pashtun and an Uzbek or a Tajik in, in Masri Sharif. And I didn't see any Pashtuns uh, that I could identify as Pashtuns in, in Masri Sharif. Help me understand what a Pashtun is. Cause I got... So Pashtun is the majority, uh, not the, it's the largest uh, ethnicity um, in Afghanistan. So the Taliban is Pashtun. Okay. And the Uzbeks and the Tajiks uh, are non-Pashtun and the Hazaras are Shia non-Pashtun, and so the Northern Alliance, who who were, who who were fighting against the Taliban, were almost entirely Uzbek, Tajik, and and Hazara. So they're like different, um, they're different peoples. Yes. And uh, I, I'm trying to picture like, so is there a different distinguishing characteristic, like? Curly hair versus straight hair, brunettes versus blonde. Well, I know so blonde, Uz but... Uzbeks are like a, a Central Asian people. So uh, they look, have Asiatic features. If you look at Dostum, he, you could tell, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't look anything like an, a, a Pakistani, for instance. He, he looks, um, you know, has these Asiatic uh, features. Okay. And you can also tell what they wear. So there's the thing, the Pakol hat is a, is a Tajik thing. And um, uh, Uzbeks who are affiliated with Dostum would also wear a kind of a green patterned um, uh, tunic or headscarf. And so you just, the longer you've been there, the more, the more used you get to these, these sort of different um, tribes and ethnicities. It sounds like a minefield, man. And that gets brought up a couple times. And that's part of like what gets left behind. There was one story they Literally were approaching and it was like mines. And they're like, wait, was this left from the Italians? Was this from the <laughs> Taliban? And you're like, holy shit. But noticing those people, it seems like as you're, you have to be aware 
to then understand when there's a mind, a personified mind that's out there that would trip you up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to, I mean, it's this sort of balance. So you have to try, you have to have your wits about you. You have to uh, learn about the places you are and the people that you're with. But you also, and you have to use translators and, and fixers and listen to Afghans. But at the same time, you have to, the worst thing you can do is think that you know it all. Mm. Uh, so, you know, you have to really strike this sort of balance. And, you know, you also need uh, a bit of luck. I mean, you don't want to have too many situations where you're relying on luck. But, you know, bad things can happen even if you do everything right in these places. Did you have a lucky situation? Uh, well, in different places over the years, uh, certainly. I mean, in Iraq... Um, on sort of it's probably the most dangerous time so it's like it would have been uh, May 2004 and so I just got in and when you just go when you just get into a country I was you know I felt I hadn't been there for the invasion the previous year uh, I was really eager to get into it to make my name and I think at that time I had a pretty high threshold for danger and risk <laughs> I think I still have certainly for risk and which has been good and bad in my life but at that time it was kind of, I think it was dangerous and so there was there was a siege in Najaf which was a Shia, Shia city and so Shia, definitely less dangerous than Sunni. Like it was the Sunnis who were about to start kidnapping people, putting them in jumpsuits, chopping their heads off and all that. And the Shia didn't do that. But they did. They could kill you and they did kidnap you sometimes. Um, but there was this big journalistic debate about was it safe to go to Najaf or not? And But some people were going. And I thought, right, I'm going to go. It's going to be fine. <laughs> and um, so, you know, we found a translator and um, driver who would take us and we just barreled down there from Baghdad. And uh, I remember on the journey down thinking, this is, this is great. This is easy. Well, before we'd even left Baghdad, we were behind an American Humvee, which got hit by an IED. And... So I don't think anybody was killed, but, you know, we're just driving behind this Humvee, not too close, thankfully. And there's this pretty big explosion and all these, you know, American soldiers jumping out going, fuck, 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 you know, and, you know, taking aim and everything. And because I hadn't spent any time in the country, I just sort of thought, oh, okay, uh, I guess that's just what happens. You know? <laughs> um, but anyway, we got down. To, we got down towards Najaf, and I was feeling, you know, pretty comfortable. And then all of a sudden, there's guys with um, with headdresses and sort of scarves covering their faces, Kalashnikovs, who were just waving down uh, the vehicle. And actually, uh, we were talking about Shia and Sunni. These were these were Shia, but we were with us. Sunny translator and driver. 
And, you know, within minutes, seconds even, were pulled out of the car. Um, they found we had flak jackets and helmets in the back. And they're holding up these things and they're saying, oh, CIA, soldiers, you know, and we go, no, 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 Sahafi, journalists. And, and then we're put into a truck and driven off. And we're, and we're sitting in the back of this truck and I look at, at the sort of bed of the truck and it's just full with RPG rounds. So all these, you know, all this, you know, ordnance. And I remember looking at the translator and I felt really calm. I felt really calm because I think I'd learned to be calm I, I, in the Navy. I'd, I consciously learned how to do that. And, and I also felt and still feel that the worst thing you can do is panic because that's when things go wrong. It doesn't achieve anything. So I was actually very calm, but part of the calmness was also ignorance. So I looked at the translator and I said, is everything, okay? is this okay? Because again, a part of me was thinking, is this just another day in Iraq? And he looked at me with really sort of sad eyes and he was going, no, it is not fucking okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so at that point I was like, oh shit, maybe this. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, we were questioned and they searched us and, there was another bad moment in that when I realized I had an Israeli press card in my bag because I was based in Jerusalem and I'd kept this press card. And, um, but I realized before they found it that they were going to find it. And I said to the translator, listen, sorry about this, but, and don't shout at me, but they're going to find an Israeli press card. And he just looked at me and say like, Oh fuck. And I said, but don't worry, just say to them that I need this. Cause I, live in Jerusalem and I need this card to cover the plight of the Palestinian people. And he was like, okay. And so, uh, so they found it. And then that's what he said. And there was a lot of shouting and things got worse for half an hour or something, but then they kind of accepted it. And in the end it was okay. And, and then all of a sudden it was smiles and, you know, slaps on the back. And, and then I interviewed them and they showed me round. And so, <laughs> You know, I guess there was luck involved in that. Um, and, you know, that was just Dude, what a turn. one of those days. It's amazing. Like, our attention starved seems insulting, right? But I guess I'm wondering, like, why the respect for journalists? Well, I mean, these, these weren't hardcore jihadists. They were... They were Shia militiamen, um, and you know they were fighting American forces. And Muqtada al Sadr, who was you know their sort of leader, you know very anti-American. But I guess they weren't they weren't ISIS. They weren't in the business at that point, and the Shia never really got into that business of of kidnapping people and and stuff. And so I think on some level, maybe they genuinely did believe we were soldiers or spies and we persuaded them that we weren't. Um, and so it was okay. But I don't think it was a particular respect for, for journalists. It was the persuasion of your translator? I think it was that. I think they realized that we were who we said we were. And 
it's probably, you know, inconvenient and uh, awkward for them if they start imprisoning Westerners and and they could get in trouble with their superiors. And they, so it was, luckily it was a more, this was just before the, the kidnappings and beheadings started. And obviously you would not want to be in that situation in Syria in 2012, for instance. And I wouldn't have made that trip in those circumstances. But I do think it was a little bit of, there was a little bit of recklessness in that behavior that day. And that was because I was new in the country. And I do think that that's, one of the most dangerous times. So you need to get acclimated. You need to sort of understand how to operate. And that sort of thirst for the story can, um, you know, eclipse some of the um, instincts about safety and security. But at the same time, you're everything is a risk there. And so if you don't want to take any risks, you wouldn't even be there. So, you know, it's a risk covering a riot in the U.S., um or or the uk um you know as a journalist often everyone's running away and you're running in the opposite direction towards what's going on and so that's you know i've done that with ira bombs for instance you know bomb there'll be a bomb scare or a bomb will have gone off and you're running towards it everyone else is running away and there could be a secondary explosion and and part of it is you just you know you try and be safe as safe as you can you try not to take unnecessary risks but you do have to take some risks because that's that's your job just as it is with the military yeah it's it's a weird it's very similar to the military and i'm curious about ego and how do you balance your ego and this thirst to have all these cool stories and experiences versus coming home well <laughs> you have another to, day i mean there are people there are journalists, you know, who I've encountered who I think almost had a death wish. You know, they wanted to die with their boots on. And and there are some people who got kidnapped more than once, for instance. And when that happens, you start to, I think, if that happened to you, you would question your own judgment. And, and with other people, part of it was you often operate in teams of maybe twos or threes, usually a non-competitor. So you'd, so you'd find a kind of a friend, a kindred spirit who you think you could work well with. And part of the process of choosing that person is you don't want to choose someone that's too reckless. Hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want to choose somebody that's so cautious that they almost can't function. And you want somebody that can compliment you so i think i had a slight tendency towards recklessness or thinking something would be okay when maybe it wouldn't so i wanted somebody i would try to work with people who could maybe rein that in a little bit <laughs> who might be just a little bit more cautious to me and say hey toby yeah but at the same time some people who were a little bit more on the cautious side, I think they might have wanted to work with someone like me who could kind of stiffen their spine a little bit and say, it's going to be okay. I think if we do this and we do that, we're going to be all right. But at the same time, isn't just going to be like, fuck it, we're going to go. And there were people like that. Yeah. So 
you know. Y'all need some like weird journalistic Zodiac based dating app <laughs> to like <laughs> pair you up to find that balance. That's very smart on your part to not to, to look for the counter instead of look for the pro or the addition yeah. to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, you definitely don't want somebody who's going to reinforce your worst yeah. instincts. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I mean, that's just, I think it's just part of, um, and you, you know, have to do that in everyday life. You have to recognize, you know, who you can trust, who you can't, who's kind of got their head screwed on, who maybe is a bit flaky. And so, yeah, I mean, but I think staying alive, staying as safe as much as you can and um, getting the job done involve these kind of um, character assessments, not just the people you were interviewing and writing about, but, but colleagues as well. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking when you were talking about trying to figure out, like, are they bullshitting me or is the city really unsafe going back to 2020 in Afghanistan? Yeah. And I'm like, it. that seems like a transferable skill where you start to develop your gut, right? You get those bacteria in your gut where you realize this is someone I trust or I get this vibe where, nah, something's flaky here. Something's yeah. off. Yeah. What was F... I'm not to, I guess, to compare, but not to compare Iraq and Afghanistan. After going to Iraq, was Afghanistan like that big of a deal to go there to get the interview with the warlord? Or was it just like, ah, I'll just block off a couple of weeks. No big deal. Um, so I felt pretty safe in 2020, to be honest, um, because I wasn't going into any Taliban controlled territory. I wasn't going onto a battlefield, I wasn't even embedded with troops, although I've always felt reasonably safe embedded with, with troops. Um, I mean, it's still a risk, but statistically, it's a relatively small risk, depend, you know, depending on what's going on. But I mean, I went into Fallujah with um, 1st Infantry Division, and that was pretty hairy and pretty scary. Um, and, you know, the company com commander of the company I was with was killed and others were killed um but I felt reasonably safe lots of you know soldiers around me and um but you know the the most dangerous times or the, the, the scariest times for me were in Iraq where I'm traveling alone or with another journalist a translator and a fixer, a bit like the Najaf scenario, but in sunny areas where you just think like at, at any moment I could just, you know, be dragged out of the car and, and, you know, put in a jumpsuit and it, you know, things are going to look very bleak. But in Afghanistan in 2020, you know, I was under the protection of, you know, Dostum and the Sopranos or whatever, <laughs> in uh, in the north Such and in kabul i mean actually an, another journalist uh, an afghan journalist um who'd grown up in pakistan and done a lot of work with um international news organizations and actually he was writing for stars and stripes at the time he just said to me he said kabul's fine he said <laughs> <laughs> he said basically you know the bombs are usually very early in the morning. 
Um, he said, there's, so there's a, there's a danger, obviously, of being caught up in a, in a bomb, you know, just like any person in Kabul. But generally speaking, the Taliban's in negotiations with the US. They're not in the business of kidnapping Westerners, so you're not going to be targeted. And that was the real fear in Iraq, mm. was of kidnap. In Iraq, I was never, I mean, maybe I was foolish, but I was never afraid, afraid of getting shot or blown up. I was really afraid of getting kidnapped. Um, and so he explained it, he explained it, to, as he explained it to me, the risk was pretty low. And so I felt pretty safe in Kabul and I walked around a bit and I certainly went in taxis and, um, you know, you, you, you try not to spend a long time in a, in a certain place hmm. uh, because Obviously, if you're seen arriving and then you're there for half an hour or something, that can that gives people time to get organized and get a group of government to come and get you. So, you know, you, you're not predictable. You spend a short amount of time in places. Um, but, you know, there weren't Westerners being killed in Kabul at that time. Dude, and uh, so... A half hour seems like a short amount of time to me. So you can't, like, you don't feel comfortable going out and grabbing a lunch <clears throat> somewhere. Like, that's well, a terrible thing. Well, so I, do. so in 2020, I, in fact, with this journalist, we went, we went out to a restaurant, which was completely empty and, and had, um, had dinner. But, he, you know, he, he was a local, so he, he knew the restaurant, he knew the area. Mm-hmm. And there had been times previously when the Taliban were blowing up restaurants and killing westerners and uh, you know um so if that had been the environment then i may well have just eaten in in the hotel but this time it seemed like a very small risk and you know also i'm in afghanistan i want to get out and um i don't want to stay in the hotel the whole time yeah that i kept thinking about that too when you were talking about days on days waiting and it took me back to like my COVID days where I was like, how long did I stay? And I, I'm pretty country where I live, like cornfields, <clears throat> woods. I was, there were no police going up and down telling me I have to stay in my house. I could get into my yard easily. I go for jogs. But I'm like, how long did I stay in my house before I went stir crazy? And I think the longest was like two days before I had to get mm. in my car and fucking go somewhere. Mm. And I kept thinking about you in this city waiting well, I was definitely getting stir crazy because I also at both ends. So when I was in Masri Sharif waiting to go to Shebagan to interview Dostum, that was a week. And then I think after I'd interviewed him and then I spent two or three days interviewing other people there, I think I was stuck there for another 10 days waiting for a helicopter. <laughs> and, and, you know, Dostum's guest and I was in Dostum's guest house in, Shebag- in uh, Masri Sharif before I went to Shebagan. And so you're being plied with food all the time. There's so much food. It's like a cruise. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. But there's this Afghan thing of, you know, you know, have some more. And you go, no, 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 thanks. And they go, and then they put it on your plate and you're like, no, 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 I really don't want it. And then you're like, oh, okay. And so you so you know you're eating too much and right. the food is good. And so I was definitely, I was definitely getting stir crazy. Do you get paid this is a super weird question how does the pay work like do you get paid by the hour like who's flipping well the bill so for this? 
uh, as a journalist, you know, I was worked for the Daily Telegraph for many years, the Sunday Times, so big London newspaper. So I'm just on a salary, and um, you don't get paid more to be in these places. I mean, you may get a promotion or a pay rise, um, I guess, as a result of the work you've done. But I mean, one thing is though, you don't spend any money when you're there. So all your food, all your accommodation, you know, your your paycheck is just going into your bank. Um, so that's the case when you've got a newspaper behind you. In 2020, I was working full time on the book. So I just paid for it myself. I mean, I got an advance for the book, wow. um, which, you know, not life changing sums by any means. So, uh, yeah, money was money was tight. I was paying. I was paying for everything. Yeah. Are you the kind of guy? Because to me, it would drive me nuts. Like every day that passes, I would just think of dollar signs and I'd be like, all right, I got my information. I need to get out of here and go like do more to keep earning and keep making better. Or are you just writing well, drafts and like drinking there was a, a bunch bit, of booze? <laughs> there was a bit of that. Um, I mean, I, you know, when I was with Dawson, because I was his guest, so I was in his guest house. So I wasn't paying for accommodation. I mean, when I was in Kabul, I was, yeah, I was, I had a, you know, I had a cheap rate. There weren't that many people staying in the Serena Hotel, which nice hotel in Kabul. Um, but I, I don't know, it was $150 a night or something. So yes, I'm, it was definitely on my mind. And I was interviewing people. Um, and actually, I started writing the book when I was in Kabul because... Oh, no way. Yeah, so it felt it felt kind of appropriate in a way, but also I planned to be there for two to three weeks. I ended up being there for six weeks. I missed Thanksgiving, so I was pretty unpopular at home. And I was, I was starting to think, damn, is this going to go through to Christmas? Um, so yeah, so the money, the money was on my mind a little bit, um, certainly when I was in Kabul, but more like it was... Actually, at the time, it was more time because I wanted to go in, spend three weeks in there, Max, get out, and I need to start writing this book. But I used the time uh, when I was um, stuck in Masri Sharif, waiting in Kabul, stuck in Masri Sharif, and then stuck in Shebagan to start writing this damn book. And so, you know, that's how I, that's what I did. Yeah. So do you have to have a particular environment? to be able to write? Because to me, it's almost like now I'm looking at it through that lens and I'm like, oh, okay, you're on like a 12 hour flight. Might as well just knock out some pages type thing. So I think as a journalist, one of the things you learn to do is, you know, I had dead, uh, daily deadlines and I had to write stuff. So it wasn't a case of, you know, when the muse <laughs> takes me or, Oh, I'm not feeling like it. I've got writer's block today. You just have to do it. And so you learn to write in all sorts of environments. And so in those early days, there used to be copy takers, like usually older ladies um, that you would phone up in London and you would dictate your copy to oh, them. Really? Yeah. Huh. And and so sometimes I just write from my notebook. Uh, some people, and I did it a couple of times, you would actually be in the thick of something and you just, 
ad-lib it. And so you were just dictated to the to the copy takers. Um, and so in places like Fallujah, there was no uh, cell phone signal. It was very hard to use your satellite phone. You couldn't, you couldn't, we had things called Biganzen, which were these like computers, which you uh, could file by getting a link to a satellite, but it was really difficult to get a link. You were inside buildings and, uh, also, I had serious power problems there. There was a power surge that knocked out all my equipment, which was a freaking oh. nightmare. So anyway, you just learn to, to, to do it. And so I don't have a particular place. I can write in a coffee shop. I can write in my office here. Uh, I can write in Dostum's guest house in Shabagan. <laughs> uh, I don't particularly like writing on planes, I have to say. I tend to just sleep on planes if I possibly can. But uh, I think, yeah, I just, I can write anywhere, really. Where, now I'm curious where I hadn't considered this. So you hadn't really started writing the book till you went to the guest house. Right. So the way I, so, so I got the book deal, signed the contract with Little Brown in December 2019. And I was due to uh, submit the manuscript in February 2020, so 14 months. Okay. So that's a pretty tight timescale because Is we it? had to hit that for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And so the way I tend to work is, and so I've just signed a, well, I haven't signed it, but we've just done a deal for a next my next book. And... I'm going to have two years before I submit the manuscript because I wanted a little bit more time because it was very compressed with first casualty. But the way I tend to work is, and everybody's different, but I sort of immerse myself in the subject. I do all the reading I can. I do all the interviewing I can. Then I leave it to almost the last minute Again, because I, I feel like I need the pressure of a deadline. And then I write it. So I think other people are different. Well, I'll write little bits and pieces. But to me, I don't know what I'm going to write until I know everything I've got. Mm. And so I was at that point. And so the two previous books I've written, I took sort of leave of absence from the newspaper. And both times I went away somewhere like a cottage the first time, a cabin the second time, just me, the dog. And I wrote about 10,000 words a week. And I think I, both times I took eight weeks and I, I'd, then I'd written 80,000 words or 80,000 words plus, which is, it depends on the, obviously books can be a different length, but I then came back and wrote another couple of chapters to finish it off. Um, but, you know, when I really put my head down and when I've got, everything kind of gathered, I can write pretty quickly. Now, at the same time, I still do interviews until the very last minute, because that's just the way I am. And I feel there's always stuff you learn at the last moment, and you could just slot it in because you, uh, like you're you know, where it goes. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering, man. So you're like cranking out these words and then does like, oh, fuck, I wish I knew this. Do you like throw a sticky note up on the wall and keep yeah. typing and then or you just a, yeah. reach back? Or I'll, yeah, or I'll call David or somebody and say, hey, what about this? I don't understand this. What Or, you know, what was going on here? 
Um, and but I feel if you you know if you map things out too far ahead, then it could be kind of like a, a straitjacket. Mm. And so I didn't know the story of you know I was researching the story of Team Alpha for nearly a year and I didn't know what that story was going to be and so I, I guess I could have <laughs> how written how did you sell the manuscript <laughs> well you have to do you have to I Is guess that... some some people you know you have to do a certain amount of work to, to write a book proposal and a certain amount okay. of interviewing and, and research so but one of the I things I always say to publishers is this is going to I think the proposal's pretty good, but the book's going to be much better because I don't know exactly how, but trust me, I am going to find out better stuff. But I don't have the money to research an entire book before getting a book deal. So you, you know, you do a certain, you do a certain amount, and then the rest of it you have to do afterwards. And you know, for instance, I could have written, say. You know, the opening scene of the book, which is David Tyson uh, on September the 11th, 2001, flying from Tashkent to London and setting the scene and the physical description of him, description of his career as an academic, his languages, the fact that he was flying to London for a meeting about Stinger missiles that the CIA provided to the Mujahideen in the 1980s. I mean, I guess I could have written that four or five months before, and I knew... I knew fairly early on that I was going to start with David Tyson on that plane, um, Justin Sapp, the Greenbrier captain, underwater on the Special Forces. That was my chapter. The con. And talk about making David the ordinary man. I'm so sorry to cut you off, but to go back yeah. to that, that to me was such a good freaking choice because right away it's like, yeah, David, okay, you're in whatever, like a suit, and you're like, I, his dad was getting him an internship or something, right? And oh, then, that like, was Justin. Yeah, yeah, oh, I'm yeah. I'm sorry, Justin. But yeah. But there was like the contrast, and then all of a sudden, next chapter, this dude's like tracking an underwater beacon without being able to see it or something. And That's he's just right, feeling yeah. his way through, and you're like, holy shit, that guy's legit. So I was pleased with the start because he had David in the air, Justin underwater, and Mike Spann on the on land at CIA headquarters. And so I could have written that yeah. theoretically, you know, six months before. But then I didn't know the full s scope of the book. And I know that if I'd written it, I would have probably written it too long. Uh, I would have written it without reference, some references that I was going to make because of things that were going to happen at the end. You have that much foresight? Like, that's amazing to me to well, think about I just, the depth of this book. I just, I think I would have rewritten it. And so I think there's a moment to write, and that was that was the moment to write. And, uh, or maybe it's, maybe it's just an excuse, not laziness, but an excuse for no, well. brinksmanship. But as a, as a newspaper journalist, I could, I could never be one of those people that would write the bottom half of the story the, the night before. I might read about it and have an idea of what I was going to write. But to me, it comes down to the moment, the deadline, and you have everything at your disposal, and then you, then you know how to do it. Like you must have some serious ADHD to keep and juggle all these thoughts and storylines in your mind, man. Like it's genius. It's, it's kind of breathtaking to me. 
to not i'm just thinking of the depth of the content well i don't know in some ways i think it's the opposite of adhd because you have to focus on stuff and retain information and put it all together and let it sort of percolate in your mind so i i don't know but um it's just the way i work and it seems to work uh you know i mean i could probably cut more corners sometimes i always want to find out the that extra detail i always want to write you know obviously some of the events i was writing about in first casualty have been written about by other people but i even if it was something that was relatively familiar i wanted to find out something new mm. and I just think life is too short to write bad books. And there are a lot of bad books out there. And there's a lot of people for who books are sort of like a sideline. It's like a bumper sticker or, oh, I wrote, a, you know, I have a TV show and I do this and, oh, and then there's a book. But that's not why I write a book. For me, the book is the main event. So I put everything I can into them. Dude, I felt it. I, um, I, so looking for that detail... Because just me, I'm used to being a teacher. I get kids in vulnerable states. So I kind of try to think about how I question and approach people because I know mm -hmm. it can matter, right? Different personalities. Mm -hmm. I'm curious for you with dealing such, with such sensitive topics, but also with the egos. Yeah. Like, how do you dig in? Do you have particular techniques? Is it just a vibe? Do you try to get people <laughs> drunk? Do you have some <laughs> sort of mist that you spray? To get people well, open it's, up. It's funny because some of the Team Alpha people, we sort of laugh about this a little bit because as a journalist, you're a bit like a case officer. So a case officer, you know, a traditional spy, you're building up a rapport with people, finding out their, what their interests are, how old their kids are, their, their sort of personal life, and you try to sort of become their friend so that they can give you information. Right. And that's what a CIA officer will do when they're trying to recruit an agent who's going to betray his country. And as a journalist, you know, and as, as an author, to an extent, you're often trying to get people to tell you things they shouldn't really tell you, or that they haven't told anyone else, either because they're in the CIA and it's technically classified or at least frowned upon to, to give you that detail, or it may be very personal stuff about trauma and their experiences and that they may not even have told their family but, but anyway i mean this what i do basically is i present myself as openly and honestly as as i can i, I am who i am i've got these experiences um i've been around the block i've been to places i've been in sticky situations and I think that helps so people can see that you've done stuff. Also, I've written a couple of books before and I've done a lot of journalism so people can see that I'm serious and the type of work that I do. And I mean, certainly in the case of Team Alpha and the Green Berets and the SBS people, you know, I admire them. I admire what they've done. And so it's not like I'm doing 
story about serial killers where you, I don't know, the approach to that would be completely yeah, different. Like Mind Hunters. Sorry, <laughs> right. on Netflix, I don't know if you watch Netflix at all with your busy life, but Mind Hunters, that was one of the weirdest things. They're, I haven't watched that. Oh, dude, you'll fucking love it. They're like. Then, then, then I, I, I guess then you get into playing people and manipulation. Yeah, and that's I, what I was wondering. That has to be a hard line to toe, right? Yeah, I don't, I find that doesn't, that doesn't work. And so um, you definitely want to make, I mean, often when I'm doing an interview, you don't want it to seem like an interview. You want to see it to seem like a conversation. And you do that with a, with a podcast. You know, if, if, there's, if you're doing a podcast and you're just bombarding the person with questions, interrupting them all the time, like trying to be provocative or trying to, you know, trip them up, then it's going to be a certain type of interview. And I, I don't, I've never operated that way. That's why I would, I can't think of anything worse, really. You know, I've asked tough questions and I've done interviews to get stories and, and stuff, but being like a TV anchor on a Sunday oh, morning <laughs> talk show, trying to get and, you know, you want to get the, you want to trip the politician up. You want to you want to get your headline. I don't like doing that. I prefer to uh, have a genuine rapport with people, and even people that you might not necessarily like or want to socialize with. There's always something interesting about them. So <laughs> there's always there's always some point of connection, right. and that could be. You know, I've interviewed IRA commanders and former IRA prisoners. And, you know, you might not choose them to be your friends, but they're interesting people. They believe in their cause. Um, they've led a fascinating life. They've been through things. And they have wives and kids and dogs and like drinking and stuff as well. So, you, you know, you can find that point of connection without, I think, compromising yourself morally or deceiving them and mo most people will if you're trying to play someone uh or manipulate them i think most people will see through that so it's 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 gonna backfire so i just think you you bring all the experiences of your life everything you've done to the table and that's who you are and if people want to talk to you then that's great and if they don't well that's that's one of those things now i mean i am I will be persistent and I, I do believe that most people want to talk about <laughs> <laughs> things in their life. And so that's true. <laughs> you know, one of the things I learned early on about journalism is never take no for an answer. That's just the opening bid. But you know, so I like that. If you email somebody, you know, it took I mean, it took me really seven years to get David Tyson to speak to me properly. And now he, I consider him a close friend. We've spent many, many, many hours. Uh, together we sort of talk regularly and see each other regularly it took months i mean shannon span didn't respond to my uh letters and um messages initially and so you know you have to be persistent and sometimes you introduce the idea this is who i am this is what i'm doing and it'll take a bit of time for them to come around um but then you build up the credibility and the trust by talking to other people who they know and you try to get that personal uh, introduction. I mean, the vouch going with. Yeah, the I mean, the last question things. in a way of every interview is, "Who else should I talk to?" And then the follow-up to that would be, "Hey, well, you know, they haven't been responding to me, or you know, I I don't have their number. You know, 
do you think you might do an email introduction or do you think you might ask them? And uh, so, you know, I mean, I found with First Casualty, I mean, I never expected uh, more than two or three of Team Alpha to speak to me. There were six surviving and I spoke, I interviewed all, all six of them in the end and two out of the three members of Team Bravo who were the team with them. And so, you know, you just, you just plug away and uh, you hope that word gets around that you know what you're talking about, that you're respectful and uh, you're making the connections. I mean, that's the another thing you bring to the table is that if you're immersing yourself in a subject and you're talking to everybody, then the participants of these events can start to learn from you and, and put it, you're piecing it together for them. So you're sort of bringing something to the table. Valid. So that's another, that's another factor. I hadn't even considered that. That's a great point where they're, they're probably just interested in some other aspect of the thing they experienced. Well, everybody has a sort of tunnel vision. Yeah. And so team alpha, for instance, you know, it was very intense. Everybody had their different, roles they were in they would intersect with each other but it was all from their perspective and then mike span was killed and then it was over and it was just like a bomb burst and they were off on other teams and they were preparing for iraq and so they never really uh sat down with the others and say hey you know when that was happening what was going on with you and so when i got involved i was asking all these questions and so sometimes somebody would be telling me something and they say, oh, and this was going on. And I don't know, I don't know why, but then, you know, Glenn called me and, I, and I'd be, actually, I was speaking to Glenn. I think what was going on was this because he was there and he was on the radio and they'd be like, oh yeah, I never so, knew that. So, and then that's a great moment. That's a great feeling for, as an author to be able to do that. Where it hit me while I was reading is the seller when they were trying to flush them out and it was like, yeah. they poured diesel in there. And it's like, but diesel doesn't ignite. And I then know. They, then they tried gas or I something. I think the Afghans would have known that. But yeah. <laughs> but so what I started thinking about was like David would have, I would imagine, would have no idea how, what are the tactics being done to get them out of that cellar? And you give yeah, him. Yeah, because like, he wasn't there for that. Yeah. Yeah. Giving him a little bit of that information. Um, it, I imagine he'd be, yeah, I would think he would be like really interested in yeah, yeah, the yeah, details absolutely. of how that went down in the decision-making. and Yeah. And David was always fascinated by the Afghans because he spoke their language. And so when I went over in 2020, you know, David was like, you should try and find this person, this person, this person. And, and, and someone who's like, ask them this. And so he was fascinated, you know, so I was kind of gathering information for the book but also <laughs> helping him as well and it was it was mutually advantageous do, do you have the same approach when you're pitching the book because the pitch is interesting i've never pitched a book i've never pitched the podcast but like what's the pitch like trying to sell this idea first and then having the belief in yourself that you can then deliver on i can get this information it's hard uh, you know it's to me, in some ways, it's one of the least enjoyable things. Because also, sometimes <laughs> you can put a lot of work in and the agent will say, oh, yeah, they'll lap this up and it doesn't, the publishers don't go for it. And that's happened to me a couple of times. Oh, dude, that has to be and devastating. That has to You're be already, you know, you've met, you know, proposals these days can be you know, 
10,000 words, 20,000 words, substantial pieces of work. Um, and you're psychologically getting yourself prepared for writing this book and then they don't go for it. So, but at the same time, you, you have to be careful because if you do too much work, then, you know, if they then don't go for it and you've spent six months putting together a proposal, then that's a problem. That's financially, that's a problem because, right. you know, I have a mortgage and bills to pay and I have to, you know, have to make the finances of, of this work. So, you know, you do a certain amount to know for yourself that, that you can do it, that it's going to work and that you can persuade uh, a publisher that this is going to be a great book. But then you have to find the right publisher or editor at the publishers who sees what you can see in who can see it in me. Yeah. Um, and who can also see the, the areas of the proposal that can be developed. And, you know, as I said before, I think, you know, if I look back at the proposal for first casualty, for instance, at that point, the book was called the fort. So that was the idea. And it was much more about the Battle of Kalajangis. It was mu it was much less focused on Team Alpha, mm. and it was piecing together you know, the Green Berets, the S SBS, who had a SEAL who was there, and Dostum, and and all the rest of it. And it was much more a book about the battle. And I think the way it ended up was significantly by like five hundred percent better than their proposal. And certainly Bandit Country, the first book I did, it was, I think it was two pages of A4. That was the proposal. And, you know, it was, there were some good ideas in there, but, I mean, that was a thousand percent better than the proposal or maybe 3,000% better. So <laughs> I, say, I say this to... Not 4,000, not, not 2,500, 3,000. But the trouble is... <laughs> Everybody's human and publishers are human and they want, you know, they want a sure thing. Yeah. Well, and so, but at the same time, I think if something's, you know, there's a, there's a leap of faith and there's an element of trust in the author. And part of my pitch is, listen, I've done this before. I can write, you know, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to be, I hope it will be one day, but New York Times <laughs> bestseller, number one bestseller, because I don't have a show on Fox or MSNBC or, you know, I'm not a YouTube celebrity or whatever. You know, I'm a professional author. I'm not like a personality. Um, <laughs> I like your personality. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I my part of my pitch is the this is the proposal. I think it's good. But I'm going to throw, you know, heart, body, and soul into this. And I'm going to find out everything there is. And I know, I can't tell you what, but I know there's going to be stuff I, you know, I find out that's going to blow me away. And therefore, by extension, ultimately, the reader. Yeah. And you, um, so the pistol you know, story with David, not wanting to let the pistol go, the relationship yeah. he had with the pistol after. Like, right. did you have any idea about that during the pitch? No, no, no. Yeah, right? No. So, like, it's not like they're just hiring you. And, and this is, in my head, what I'm thinking of is, like, it can't just be your writing style. 
It has to be your ability to access information yeah. and get it in there, which is what they would hopefully value. And like, that's a great example of yeah, you that spending was, the time. And, and so that, that was also part of it is just diligence. So I will always want to speak to every person I can. Now, at a certain point, you have to write the thing. And I could have spent another five years, you know, researching Team Alpha and speaking to members of all the other CIA teams in the rest of Afghanistan. There's always another person you can speak to. And there's always a couple of people you think, oh, I really would have liked to have spoken to them. But, you know, you have to write, you have to write the thing. But that story about the pistol, that didn't even come from David initially. That came from Charlie Gilbert, who was the station chief in Tashkent. When he landed, who was right? Who was David's boss. He was the one who had this sort of confrontation with Rumsfeld. And... So I didn't need to speak to him. It wasn't essential. But I knew he would have something to say about David. I knew he had, he, he was a very senior CIA officer. Uh, so I knew that he would have a, a good sort of broader perspective. And he was the station chief in Tashkent while all this was going on. So he was involved with a lot of the big picture stuff. And I also knew that he personally knew David because it was a very small CIA station. But he was the one who told me about <laughs> the pistol. And then I was able to say, so Charlie was telling me about the pistol. And Dave was like, oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, you know, I kept yeah. it under my pillow. And so you have the story from two perspectives. And so, you know, maybe I hope that some future commissioning editors or publishers might listen to this podcast because that's an example of, I didn't have to interview Charlie Gilbert. Yeah, You, you would have never criticized me for not doing that. But because I did... I got that extra insight into David and a number of other things as well. You know, it was another one that I fucking loved, man. Um, and I forget her name. I Was it the sister-in-law that goes with Mike's wife to the CIA in Los Angeles? And the CIA is giving them shit about like money and we're not going to yes. pay for your ticket. And she's like, I I, I don't want to say the so line. So that was I'm Amy again, actually. That was Amy. Oh, that was Amy who went but, with her. But, but um, I think one of Shannon's sisters was involved in that. Yeah. And then the yeah. CIA goes around and they were like, I'll, some dude steps up. The hat like, goes around. Yeah. I'll so that was a guy called I'll... Frank Archibald yeah. who is died, uh, I think in 2020, who was a legendary agency officer, former, uh, yeah, Marine Corps officer, like Mike's fan. So he was, he was a great character. And he was the guy who, and this was just a little anecdote that encapsulated the, sort of vibe after 9-11 where in the middle of a meeting at CIA headquarters a fire alarm goes off and he just gets up rips the fire alarm out of the, out of the wall <laughs> that and carries great. on with the meeting <laughs> yeah right but like dude those are such that's why I kept having to remind myself these are real people yeah because like even the the fucking the line about seven million dollars a month or I am classy I have two Cadillacs you know, we're right. ripping it. Like there's these little comedic relief moments yeah. that you feel like are written in and you feel like would be almost like staged, right? But you're like, right, no, because, dude, they're fucking, that, that's life. But life is full of humor exactly. and even in the darkest moments. Yes. And, you know, the Afghans wanted to get vodka flown in. <laughs> the and condom Somebody stories. made a joke and they flew condoms <laughs> in. And Yeah, I mean, you know, you've got to have some, you've got to have some light relief, yeah. I think. No, but that's, it was such a good bat. And all those extra little details kept the book from being 
that kept me as a reader from being overwhelmed by so much, like we said earlier, the, ge the geography and the just the tribalism that I can't yeah, yeah, wrap yeah. my head around. Because now, yeah. oh, okay, now I can get it as a person and I can attach yeah. characteristics so I don't have to remember all these other details because I know their personality. And yeah. those are super good details where I feel like a publisher, like you can't promise you're going to deliver on that, but you did. And that's yeah. really cool, man. That, that had to be a shit ton of work. Yeah, it was, but it's, it's enjoyable. It's a labor of love. Uh, and, you know, you just, I get one shot at writing first casualty and so i want to do the very best i want to do justice to the the people involved uh do justice to the story and so it's worth it you know just sometimes just i don't know a little thing my son's 13 and he's a goalkeeper soccer goalkeeper and jr was a goalkeeper and just there was just oh, a line i wrote funny. in about how jr was a goalkeeper yeah. and and I felt it fitted his personality because he's kind of a loner. He sees the big picture and he was the chief of Team Alpha. So the buck stopped with him yeah. and he, you know, you got in trouble if there was a, a fuck up and, and, you know, if something goes well, well, it was just expected to go well. Yeah. And that's a bit like a goalkeeper. And so just the line about um, JR being a goalkeeper, I was really pleased with. And that's just one line in, I don't know how many thousand lines in the book yeah but in a way on every page over time you even start to forget yourself where exactly everything came from uh or what or at what point in the writing process that was part of the book but you know at this stage which has been published less than a year ago uh every page i can't i kind of know what was what right. what went into that and it's in there's end notes so everything's says it came from this interview or you know this was published in this book or this article at this time but uh it's kind of cool for me to know yeah you know that goalkeeper line i remember writing that and that that went in or you know or the line about you know they could have cut a deal with the taliban in um december 2001 you know i i learned about that meeting with a cia anthropologist in mclean family restaurant like a week before I pushed the final button and I just slipped that in, you know, and it's, it's sort of nice to know that, you know, obviously the re you know, it should be seamless and the reader doesn't need to know that it could have been one of the first things I found out, but, uh, you know, it's a fun process. It's, it's, um, you know, I'm into it. The goalkeeper. I, I didn't remember it because I don't think of that person for some reason. When I think about the book, I just focus on, David and then Michael's family, like me as a reader, David and Michael's family are two things that I connected with. But the goalkeeper line is again, one of those things where it just humanizes and it yeah. makes it seem so real. And it's, and, and what's the good word for analogy? Anagorical? Allegorical. Allegorical. It's allegorical and it's done so well that it just makes the person a character, even though yeah. they're a person. It just helps you to follow such a dense topic. Yeah. Um, Sean, I'm going to have to go in um, a minute or two because I um, I don't know when you're going to uh, post this, but um, Ayman al-Zawahiri has been killed by a CIA, I think a CIA drone strike today. And so I've got to do a BBC um, interview about that because he's a big Al-Qaeda figure. Oh, um, so 
Uh, Toby, we will end it on that. I was actually going to ask you to sell me on Bandit Country, which is going to be the next book I read because I love your writing style. Um, cool. So, well, Bandit Country, so... I, I know. I don't, wanna, I don't want to force you into it. If I wrote that in 1999, so that's 23 years ago. That's incredible. Um, <laughs> but I'm still very proud of it. It was. It's about the border heartland of the IRA, where the IRA chief of staff lived, where all the bombs in England in that period were made and planned. And they also had a sniper, um, two, in fact, two sniper teams where they'd used uh, 50 caliber uh, Barrett uh, sniper rifles in this rural heartland of the IRA. And it's it's over a span of like 25 years. So different from First Casualty, which is a span of two or three months. But it's a pretty cool story. And I think it's a pretty good book. And I can say that because it's almost like another person because it's 23 years ago. So yeah, thanks for mentioning it. Dude, it'll it'll be the next one I get for my jogs. I love going for long jogs and listening to books. Oh, and by the way, I believe I am your first audible review. So I hope that my words were kind enough to you. Okay, um, cool. But Thank you. I don't know if it's definitely not as well written as you are. Toby, man, I am so, um, I, I just feel so grateful for all of your time and thank you no, for the work you me do, on. man. It's, um, I, I appreciate it. You adding to my knowledge as a reader. Sure. Well, that's what it's all about. So thank you very much. All right, man. Enjoy your night. All right. Cheers. <laughs> Take care, Sean. See ya. Thanks to Andre Psyche for supporting the Getting to Know You pod. Search up Andre Psyche on social media. Give him a follow just for the fuck of it. Dear listeners, If you've enjoyed getting to know today's guest or just want to support this upstart podcast, go to our Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, your donation will help with all the costs associated with producing the Getting to Know You pod. Don't forget the three free ways to support the pod. One, subscribe to the Getting to Know You pod. Two, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Three, go to Apple, write a review. And finally... If you or someone you know would like to become a sponsor of or advertise on the Getting to Know You pod, we would love to partner with you. We have a wide-ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your brand or business. If you're interested, just message us. See you.